composer, conductor, pianist, and audiovisual and performance artist Luciano Chessa examines the work of Italian futurist, painter and musician Luigi Russolo. Presenting a reading of the mechanical sound synthesizers, the intonarumari, that he began to create in 1913, Chessett traces the roots of Russolo's instrument to Leonardo da Vinci's noisemakers, and then re-establishes the previously unacknowledged prominence of occultism, including theosophy, in early 20th century Italian culture. There it operated in tandem with contemporary scientific ideas about X-ray and wireless telegraphy, all with an emphasis on waves, vibrations, and their new communicative potential. With this in mind, it can be argued that Russell's noise aesthetic and its practical manifestation, the intonarumari, were for him, and for his futurist associates, elements of a multi-leveled experiment to reach higher states of spiritual consciousness. This lecture was recorded on 3 July 2018 at the Florence Peel Center, co-presented by Discipline and Liquid Architecture. When I began working on Russolo, on Luigi Russolo, and I will have to assume that some of you, or maybe most of you, read at the very least his Art of Noise Manifesto, published in 1913. Uh, it's only three or four pages, you can find it uh, in translation, and if you haven't read it, you can look at it. So, um, when I begin to work on Russolo uh, and uh, Luigi Russolo's aesthetic, the state of the research was as follows. Well, for, for example, about futurism, certainly there was this perception that the movement was about uh, sort of an exterior representation of uh, speed and, uh, and velocity and, uh, I would say, blind uh, celebration of mechanical life. Um, however, there were, prior to my work, important sources already dating from, I would say, uh, the, the late 60s uh, that I built my research on. So I would want to acknowledge, first of all, the work of Germano Celan and the work of Maurizio Calvesi, because both of them were among the first futurist scholars that pointed to the fact that the movement was uh, not entirely devoted to, again, celebration of mechanical life and the glorification of motion, but it also had uh, a and there was another angle which was equally as important. Chelant first on Art Forum uh, published a, uh, a short essay called Futurism and the Occult. And I think that particular essay, which is a very short essay, piqued my curiosity and in some way unlocked the research and work and aesthetic of Luigi Russolo for me. So when I began to work on Russolo, there was, uh, the, the state of research on Russolo was well, essentially, we had uh, the translation of the Art of Noise, which was available, uh, you know, already since uh, Nicholas Loninsky made the first English translation for music since 1900. And then there have been further translation after that. I think the one I want to remember is the one that I done in the late 60s by Robert Filiu. And then eventually the entire book called The Art of Noise, which is not exactly the same as the manifesto. It was about, it was about the 100 pages pamphlet that Rousseau published three years later in 1916. The book eventually got translated into English by Barclay Brown. So we, 
you know, we had the, the, some of the fundamental texts that Rousselot had left us. Rousselot's mechanical noisemaker were likely destroyed in World War II. And with that, also the scores. The only surviving uh, piece of music that we have by Rousselot uh, were two pages of, of a composition uh, written in 1913 called Awakening of the City. And we only have these two pages because Rousselot used them as a musical example for an article published in La Cerba in 1913 uh, to ex explain how his notation system worked. So we only have this music simply because it was a music example. And La Cerba being a periodical was published in multiple copies and therefore now we have access to that. There was also a few other things that were available. A, a couple of biographies written in Italian. Well, one written by his widow, for, for one thing, never published in any language, so it's available only in Italian, written in the late 50s and published eventually in the early 60s. And then um, a couple of prefatory notes. I think probably the most important one is the one by Giovanni Lista for the, that accompanies the French translation of The Art of Noise that came out in the mid-70s by the French publisher Lage Doulon. What we read about it is essentially uh, this. The Rousseau enters the movement as a painter, having, of course, had already familiarity with Marinetti's aesthetic because they were friends prior to the founding of Futurism. He signed the manifestos for painting, the first one and then the subsequent one, the technical manifesto as well. Those dates, 1910. <coughs> and then a couple of years later, uh, passing the breakthrough year of 1912, which is a key year for futurism, because I think I like to look at 1912 as the year in which just about everybody participating in the movement, including Marinetti, finally were able to create art that in some way reflects what they had theorized in their manifestos. So this is, of course, not even my work, but it's the work, uh, a work on, on other scholars, particularly Leonardo Tondelli, who had written an important book on Marinetti uh, called Marinetti Futurist Without the Future. It's not translated in English, but it, uh, uh, it's a very striking uh, piece of writing. And he argues that Marinetti writes the manifesto on destruction of syntax. Marinetti writes about the poetry that he's going to produce and is going to be futurist poetry, but the poetry itself uh, truly materialized with Zhang Tung Tung of 1912. Same for the painter, there is this perception, you know, they, they write the manifesto, they're caustic, attack arts, you know, uh, of the time, particularly in Italy, but then the true realization of their ideas and concept only comes after the key 1912, when the Italian futurists had an exhibit in Paris and discovered cubism. And particularly the discovery of cubism gives them the technical tool to achieve what they actually intended to. Uh, and if you're interested in the subject and you don't know, I definitely recommend the essay by Boccioni titled What Differentiate Ourselves from Cubism. I may refer to that, you know, eventually because I think it's a very important piece of writing, theoretical writing. So Rousselot had entered the movement as a painter, but then in that 1912, which is a year of experimentation, but also accomplishments, as I just mentioned, Rousselot begins to shift away his interest from painting and into art of sound and, and into music, or what at the time 
Even Marinetti, which was a big supporter of Russell's enterprise, also financial supporter, hesitate to call music and prefer the label Art of Noise. So if you even take a look to any publication uh, in by Marinetti from the Edizioni Futurista di Poesia, so-called, Marinetti as a publisher uh, publishes most of this book for, uh, with his own publishing company. And uh, in the back cover, you constantly find the rubrics of the movement. So you can follow how the various artists uh, change direction and so on. So in that 1912, you, uh, 1913, you will find Rousselot in, not listed under futurist music, as you would expect, but under a different category, which is, in fact, the art of noise. So even Marinetti was a little reluctant to calling uh, him a musician, per se. Uh, anyway, Rousselot moves away from painting and in that 1912 begins to research, begin a research that will lead him to the formulation of Art of Noises in the following year, plus the fabrication of a, an orchestral mechanical synthesizer he called Intoner Mori, Noise Intoners. So the, what was discussed in the sources prior to my uh, research was essentially that Rousselot changed his direction and produced this Intoner Mori and then plays concert all over Europe. Then after the war, still plays more concert after 1921. And then after that, sort of moves away from the internal memory, tried to build a musical instrument for less than 10 years. And then after that, he completely abandoned all of this and discovered something different. Discovered spirituality thanks to the involvement of scholars involved in theosophy called Guido da Torre, which allegedly he met in the late 20s in, in Paris. So it's what was presented to me as I was looking at this body of work was this essentially radical revolution that, uh, of Rousseau that moves away from machine, moves away from the mechanical and discover the spiritual. The moment that I start to read Germanchaland sources, and also uh, Maurizio Calvesi as well. Well, they both spoke already in discussing painting of a movement that is not exactly anchored just merely to an exterior representation of movement. And that work, that pioneer work, led me to reconsider Rousseau's work. And that reconsideration has to start with this painting right here. This is the best version I could grab on the internet, but in any case, you won't find a tremendously better reproduction of this painting for the simple reason that the painting is lost. So there are only one black and white photograph in existence. The painting from 1911, so predates even the year that Rousseau began to work with music, is listed in all catalogs of exhibits you know, in the early teens, where Rousseau showed it as self-portrait with etheric double. So looking at the works like this, like work like this, so work produced in 1911. And this is certainly before Rousseau shift his attention toward sound. But also, you know, about 20 years before he even met this gentleman in Paris that supposedly initiates him to the study of theosophy, called Guido de Torre, as I mentioned before. Well, he already is painting 
a work titled Self-Portrait with the Etheric Double. So this painting was very important for me because the moment that I looked at the painting, I see theosophy in it, which it shouldn't be surprising because as I was conducting my research, I realized that theosophy was very much an important source for futurist aesthetic, not just Rousselot, but most of the artists that participated to futurism, including Marinetti, the founder, but also many others, were already very well aware of theosophical sources. In that same 1911, Berto Boccioni delivers a key talk in, at the Gruppo Roma. In, it's a Roman conference that I don't also think is translated into English, but you can find in the collected writings of Boccioni. And uh, there, Boccioni makes direct reference to theosophy. And Boccioni and Russolo not only were part of, say, the Milanese group of futurism, they were very dear friends even prior to the beginning of futurism. So they were really working together. They had even shared similar experiences working prior even to become painter, uh, working with advertisement. They bought Dirk Sam, Rousselot's earliest work together with Woodcut and etching and so on, are actually uh, commercial works for tires, ironically enough. So you can find some of that reproduced. And Buccioni also worked on it. So that's kind of a very futurist uh, debut, I would argue, right? <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, in that same 1911, Boccioni is already giving a presentation talking about art of the future connected with theosophy. And theosophical sources are really omnipresent in the work of, uh, of the Italian futurists. So the more I was digging into it, the more I found plenty more examples of influence of theosophy in the works of futurists. Uh, many more than I even expected to find after reading the brief article by Celan and the work of Maritza Calvesi. And there it came, of course, my, uh, you know, the fundamental idea for my research, which was, well, if Rousselot already in 1911 is exhibiting interest in theosophy so overtly that he paints entire works based on it, could it be that we could actually look at the art of noise differently now? And what could it possibly be, you know, if it wasn't just a way of creating a concert experience that will imitate in an exterior way uh, the sound of machine age? Eventually, Rousselot, a couple of years later, would be painting cars. You know, after that breakthrough year of 1912, all of this will become to populate will begin to populate the world of futurism. So we will have also exterior in a way representation of movement as, uh, and so on. But I think this is really very much the root, the root of Rousselot's uh, work, this self-portrait with the etheric double. What is the etheric double and why is this relating to theosophy? So I pointed to you the fact that, well, can you not see the face of Rousselot in the center of the portrait? Now, if you look on your right, can you see the second face? If you can, maybe you can get closer or you can find a better representation. But, you know, these are the two eyes, there's a nose. It's almost like if he had the mirror sideways. And so on the right side, of, well, on his own left side, the face, there is a second face, right? So Rousselot, interestingly enough, talked about doubling the self through practice of meditation and exteriorization of sensibility, that the term that he 
uses that is definitely connected with, with theosophical writing. So the possibility of, in a sense, project an image through sheer willpower and animate it and move it at its will as he is in a uh, specific state of mind, of meditation state of mind. What happens here is that the self-portrait, so Russell himself he is presenting not only his gaze, but also his essentially luminous essence that is shaped like his face. And he's projecting that in the aura that surrounds his body. All of this you will find in theosophical sources, and particularly in a key book that maybe you have read, because it's a pretty important work for anybody interested in abstract art anyway. This is the book by Charles Ledbetter Anderson called Thought Forms. First publishing, the publication of the book is 1901, and then it gets relatively quickly translated into, into French. So by 1904, we have a French edition of the book. And as the book, at the moment that the book becomes available in French, suddenly the entire sort of educated European world can read it, including the futurists, which are familiar with thought forms. Early artists associated with Rousseau already discussed thought forms as early as 1910. I'm thinking of the, the Count Ginanni Corradini, Bruno Corra and Arnaldo Ginna, which entered the futurist movement uh, more or less at the time, and in one of our earlier work called Methodo, Method, make specific reference, not simply to theosophy, but to that thought forms. So some of this vocabulary is, it, could, it would have been unthinkable without assuming that Rousseau actually had access, not necessarily to the copy of the book, but the knowledge contained in thought forms. Maybe as, a, as an aside, I would say briefly that in thought forms, Charles Bitter and Anne theorized the possibility of documenting forms produced by thought. And uh, by that, they mean that around the aura that surrounds the various body, our feeling will, project, will become projected as if the aura was a screen. These projections typically are abstract, but they represent or match our feeling. So in top form, you will say, for example, that if the particular person is angry, the images will be like pointy, sharp, you know, uh, images that are red, bright red or something, because you're angry. If you are, of course, in a peaceful state of mind, it would be puffy blue clouds and so on. <laughs> so it's, uh, I'm, you know, banalizing it, but that's essentially what you find there. So... Um, Theosophy would have been a very good source of futurists because it's this perfect blend of metaphysics and rationality. In a way, because the, the pretenses there by the theosophists, by Bezantos and Peter in particular in thought forms, was to create, uh, to apply the scientific method to the investigation of spirituality. So in the thought form, for example, well, we find out by reading the book that these images <coughs> that get projected in the aura can only be seen by clairvoyance. So not everybody can see this, they, these images. But they nonetheless affect the, the person. So if you are nearby somebody that is angry, that images of the aura are clashing against your puffy blue clouds and making you in some way angry as you come in contact with them. Clairvoyance, however, can dictate what they're seeing. 
So working in conjunction with a visual artist, they can actually get a pretty good photographs or visual representation of these various thought forms. So in the book, the scientific method is applied because you, know, you will find situations of like, this particular image represents, is being collected at, I don't know, 10 a.m. in the morning in Scotland Yard. A man just killed his wife and get there and he's uh, very angry. This is the thought form. And of course, plenty of red darts and aggressive images populate this, this, this painting and so on and so forth. So, but the scientificity of that process is, you know, collecting a very specific time and space as if this was like a, a document, a scientific document of it. So theosophy applies scientific methodology to their investigation. That's one of the main argument that can be made to describe theosophy. And so that scientificity, it fits really well with some angle of the, of the futurist movement. Again, because it's, it's in some way very appealing to be working with this kind of metaphysical rationality. So, Rousseau could have only painted this painting knowing about theosophy, which leads uh, to a second image, which is of much better quality, because we actually do have the painting. It's in London at the historic collection, though he travels. It's the largest painting Rousseau made, and I was able to identify the back of this painting in the previous image that I show, you know, one of those... Uh, you know, psychotic investigation of that image that I made, I was able to measure a specific panel, not showing the painting, that is resting on the wall and matches the dimension of this painting. If I scale it and everything. So, uh, Russell was very attached to this painting, so he had it in his studio and never actually sold it. And uh, it's the largest painting that he made, and it's titled La Musica. Being painted in 1911 and then repainted, as we know, in 1912, after he dissatisfied, decided to create a new version of it. So to the point that there are at least three versions of this painting. Um, with the title, La Musica, I felt that this had to be a, a perfect place to test my theory. And again, we got a painting that if we start to look at the work vis-a-vis theosophical writing, and particularly thought forms, we finally realize how incredibly connected it is to theosophical thought, even more than the previous painting. And so this is the bridge that gets Rousseau from painting to music, painting music. Uh, so much of his investigation, in any case, can be reconducted to fundamental synesthetic ideas. So the movement over and over makes the claim that all arts are one, uh, already the Ginoni Corradini wrote that in the epigraphy of their book I mentioned before titled, titled Method. The epigraph of the book is a, is a line by uh, one of Italy's founding father, Giuseppe Mazzini, which I found out just there that he actually writes about aesthetic. He was not just a politician or a Republican, uh, early Republican figure, but uh, uh, the epigraph said, the arts are missing the person that will gather them together. It will miss, but it will come. You know, very triumphal, kind of Wagnerian, and so on. But, so that was the epigraph of the book. And so, synesthesia certainly is a key word for the futurist. And this is yet one more place. I mean, we are using colors to represent music. So, when the painting was shown in several circumstances, the reaction was mostly like, 
oh well, here we have a figure playing the piano and the painting represents the various feelings that the music evokes. So that's kind of like an entry level of analyzing this work. <laughs> yes, it's more or less what we get, I suppose. Uh, th this entry level will be uh, Giacomo Puccini's entry level, as Giacomo Puccini sees the painting in 1919 at the cover show and writes about it. But what Puccini sees and what I see are kind of different because Puccini was not as aware of theosophical writing. There's another way of looking at it, and let's actually look at the element that constitutes the painting. First of all, there's a keyboard, right? So the central figure is kind of, kind of like a performing pianist with many limbs because it's playing so quickly that the hands kind of multiply one, two, three, four, five. You know, we have five hands. That alone was contentious within Futurism in, in the year 1912 because Boccioni would have hated this representation of movement. And there's, there's a lot of uh, literature being, being published in that year, particularly between, uh, you know, fights between uh, Umberto Boccioni and Giacomo Valla, specifically on how to represent the movement. But aside from that, let's, let's uh, look at what we offer. So we have this figure playing, then there are these concentric circles that goes from the, the lightest of the blue to the darkest. Then we have these faces, which by the way, kind of all matches, they seem to be masks. You know, they are more or less the same size as the, as the player. And then, and then there's this swirling blue ribbon. So another way of looking at this painting is to say, well, maybe this is the sound, it's the sound wave that is like becoming larger. So that the very state of mind that the music that, uh, can produce. And so this blue ribbon, perhaps people say, oh, this is maybe the, the, the melodic line. It's a, it's a way of representing the melodic line. This is, you know, it's an okay way of looking at it. But I think there's a third way of seeing this. And I think it's what I, uh, what I would call a theosophical reading. So the circle in my theosophical reading are the aura itself, which we know from theosophical sources that is stronger when it's, get, when it's closer to the body and then becomes weaker and weaker progressively as it, uh, as it, the distance between the, the subject and the aura increases. So our sort of power or energy dissipates the way that would happen with the light source in a way, you know, with the light bulb or with the candle or whatever. So the energy is, is greater here and uh, decreases as it moves further away from the subject. So the aura, as we know, is a screen over which our feeling that project gets projected. The feelings are no longer abstract because Rousseau was interested in that materialization or exteriorization of sensibility that I mentioned before. We see a rehearsal in the previous painting, right, where he has not one face but two. In this case, he doesn't have just one face or two, he has many, because many are the, the possibility of his uh, music. But more importantly, I think the painting connects with what Rousseau is about to do, which I will explain in a moment, but I guess one important contribution by Rousseau was to create music that in his word was enharmonic. So the, the designation of enharmonic is a little bit uh, confusing because when we think something enharmonic, we usually think what? Well, in music, we think perhaps two sounds 
or two pitches that have two different names, but in fact are the same note or at the same frequency. So, in other words, we will say that A sharp is enharmonically equivalent to the B flat, right? So this is what typically enharmonic means in English as well as actually in Italian. But futurists were schooled in a conservatory in which also the word enharmonic was borrowed directly from Latin and even pre-Latin and even Greek theory. So what we find in Plutarch is that the description of Greek music and the system based on tetrachords that were joining one with the other had three fundamental modes. One was called enharmonic because the tetrachord will include notes or interval which were smaller than half step. So the three Plutarch systems were essentially the diatonic, where we have a descending scale, like say, let's say descending mixolydian, uh, with no alteration. We have the chromatic, which is usually when one of the tetrachord is chromatic, say, has accidentals, and then we have a harmonic system when we are using notes that are smaller than the half step. So, Balila Pratella, the first musician to write a manifesto of music, already claims that music is, should be enharmonic. And by calling that enharmonic, it really means microtonal. So, if we read that Balila Pratella's manifestos, we discovered that he would like to have music that uses intervals that are smaller than half steps, advocating for quarter tone environments, for example. This was pretty standard at the time because one of the sort of like the established musician, which was futurist friendly, even though he was much older, Ferruccio Busoni, already shared with the futurist fascination for this division. And he, in fact, effectively found a notational system for quarter tone. And so when Rousseau is working in 1912 on shifting away from uh, painting to music, and he doesn't really have a formal training, but his both brothers went to the conservatory, and he, of course, had read Balila Portella's manifesto. So in some way, he's thinking, I should also look at what this microtonal environment is. They call it, again, and harmonic, but this is what he meant. And the moment that he understands how what this means, he is already thinking of ways to even go further. So in 1911-12, when the most radical compositions are either, either Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, working with uh, polytonality and very complex rhythm, complex time signatures, or composers in <coughs> Germany or Soviet or, or pre-Soviet Russia that are already looking in microtonal division uh, and so on. Rousseau is thinking of something further than that. Uh, so actually, this uh, brings us to probably one of the main points that I want to make this evening: that Rousseau's music and Rousseau's internal mori are the application of this notion of continuity. Rousseau talks about continuity, which is a term that, in, that actually he is deriving by Boccioni's aesthetic. So maybe some of you know some of Boccioni's sculptures. There's one called Single 
forms in the continuity of space. It's so important and so relevant that Italians choose that particular sculpture to be the sort of the, the backside of the 20 cent of euro coin. So it's pretty, you know, we care about it. It's an important work. So that sculpture represents a man running or in motion. But instead of presenting a frame-based representation of motion, in other words, instead of showing movement as superimposing various stages, as if it was a film in which we take all the frame and superimpose one to the other. Instead, Boccioni create a sculpture about <coughs> continuity, something that in terms he had borrowed from uh, you know, his own sources, not just philosophical, of course. But uh, So he presented a sculpture about continuity in which uh, the man is moving, but the movement is continuous because we can't divide continuity that way. If I move my hand from here to here, the hand is not appearing and disappearing in spurts. I'm covering the space, you know, uniformly and, and, and in a continuous fashion. So the notion of continuity in two represent movement was far more spiritual and sacred than this frame-based representation. So this painting is important because it's Rousselot's side or Rousselot's taking a side in that Boccioni versus Balla uh, contention and taking Boccioni's side. Because what we get here is that the discontinuous keyboard, right? Because we have all these keys. So there's nothing continuous about a piano keyboard, right? And I think this is precisely the point this painting is making. And this movement as well of the player playing turns into a continuous swirl. So how, why is this important in music? Because the instrument that Rousselot will proceed building, called Dora Rumori, they actually gives you continuity. They're continuous because, at least in three different ways, the, the, most, the, the simplest one is continuous because they produce continuous sound. By turning the crank inside the mechanism, you can have a held note. They're also continuous because inside the machine, there's a string attached to a lever. And as, I move, as a player moves the lever up and down, the instrument glides in glissandos. So the instruments are not designed to play scale, not the diatonic scale, not the chromatic scale, not the quarter tone scale. They are designed to create glissandos, the way the sirens function. So Russell, in a way, creates instruments connecting directly some of the readings he's made, particularly from Helmholtz on the sensation of tone, where there are there is an entire chapter about sirens and so on. And he's applying that to his new idea of sound that in a way is far more innovative, if we can use still this very loudest word, than the kind of division that Balila Pratella is advocating for. He doesn't want a musical division. He's not interested in tone. He writes in the art of noise again the stupidity of semitone, which is I, it's always been a, a favorite 
line of mine, you know, the stupidity of saying that, yeah, because he feels that, that just like the movement that I was describing in uh, Umberto Boccioni's sculpture is sacred because it's continuous. It's a representation of, of something that cannot be divided and shouldn't be divided with something, in fact, uh, so he's, he's applying that into the machine itself, creating, in fact, music that does not use this division at all. If you look at the score, the fragment of Awakening of the City, he even substitutes note heads with lines. And then you have to figure out the no a new notation system to explain how to the musician how to actually synchronize the parts. Well, this is a, a considerable leap forward, given that he wasn't since menstrual notation, since really, you know, like the early uh, work of the 1100, that we had somebody looking at notation that way. We're getting rid of something that was extremely useful, the difference between note heads, right? And of course, accompanying stems and flags. None of that we find in Rousseau's music because he's taking away the note heads. So that he has to figure out the system to synchronize rhythm. And then he does. And that's why we have this article about notation that explains us how he did it, which in turn, this is why we also get this fragment of his music, thankfully. But the reason to develop a new notation is because he's looking at something that in fact is no longer pointy or broken or intermittent, which is actually the word he uses, with in fact what he called dynamic continuity. So in the, in the book, in fact, there's a section that specifically said that he wants to substitute uh, the so-called dynamismo intermittente, intermittent dynamism, with dynamic continuity. So the word continuity is definitely an obsession for him, or it's at least a very important point. I told you earlier on that there are three different kinds of continuities, right? So I listed the first one by saying continue sound. Turn the crank and the sound keeps going. I just told you about the blue ribbon and that kind of like uh, environment that he calls enharmonic, and by that means kind of glissando. There's a third continuity which has to do directly with his research. First building an X-ray machine in his, in his studio here in Viastapani, with the desire, perhaps, of applying some of the ideas that are already contained in the technical manifesto of Futurist painting, where the Futurist already argues in that manifesto the Rousseau cosine, well, why should we take, keep painting things as we are doing when now we have X-ray that allows us to penetrate to a deeper uh, level of reality? So they argue about using X-rays as a way to create paintings, and sure enough, Rousseau is attempting to building the X-ray machines, as I was able to um, uh, prove in my book. Uh, Rousseau had access to the schematics because it was probably the most, well, the, the, the most loved machine of the opening of the century. It was a new discovery, but there were so many places in which Rousseau could have access to that. And in addition to the fact that he would have had the schematics available, Marinetti writes a dire entry claiming that he goes and visits Rousseau in this very room, and there he's working with plates and uh, uh, radiations and so forth, and describes very much with poetical means, but you know, the experience of building an X-ray machine. Well, X-ray machine and cathode ray tubes are connected because and that's, what we, that's how we build an oscilloscope. 
And so, which made me argue that Rousselot would have built the oscilloscope in this very room because he had the technical tool, but also because it described sound waves and sound forms. And this is the third continuity I want to discuss, which was equally important for Rousseau, the continuity in the, in the, the sound continuum or the sound spectrum, which completely demolished the former idea that there is a point in which sound stops being sound and becomes noise. Rousseau's argument was that noise and sound are one and the same. Therefore, we can do music, we can make music with noises because any claim that what we hear is sound or noise is entirely cultural. Not, so much, not simply that, but also the line that demarcates and divides what is sound and what is noise keeps shifting throughout the century. So by looking at sound forms, Russell is able to argue that and he speaks about that in the manifesto and then subsequently in the book, he's able to argue that what we call noise is just a more complex sound form. So all of them are sound, and if all of them are sound, then the art of noise is possible. So this strict continuity all linked to this idea in any case of continuity that is also derived from theosophy. And uh, here is actually probably the, the, the end of my talk, which, where I will discuss you know, how this vision of sound and, and uh, x-rays connects with, uh, with his interest in, in theosophy. Well, they do, because not only the notion of continuity per se is, uh, has metaphysical sources, and this idea of continuity is linked with the idea of infinity, which is linked to the idea of perception and the divine. But also there are other aspects here that we need to keep into consideration. Theosophy largely looks at the kind of sources that, uh, or um, scientific machines that Rousselot is attempting to build and effectively build in it. So we find a lot of interest uh, from theosophy with, uh, well, great ex uh, like wave theory and, and gray theory. So their fascination with this new discovery of science at the turn of the century, particular radio, radioactivity, x-rays, and so forth, which seems to confirm, uh, as they become more, more popularly available, more widely available, they seem to confirm that reality is animated by a, a variety of manifestations that may not be perceived readily with our science, and yet they exist. So on that same ground, we'll make them argue that you know, like we should therefore perhaps investigate scientifically ectoplasm because ectoplasm or even the aura or even the, you know, the, the sound form that I just, uh, the, the, the thought form that I just described, uh, which only clairvoyants can see. So some people can see it, most of us cannot, but it's not that they don't exist because most of us can see it. The, the new science at the turn of the century is already establishing uh, successfully this concept that, again, that our world is animated with these forces that even though our senses cannot yet see, in, they still affect us. Obviously, we can't see electromagnetic waves, but they are there nonetheless. We can't see X-rays, those rays we cannot really see, but we can see their manifestation, and they allow us in turn to see as well. So, the excitement around science 
that maybe we associate with futurism and the kind of mechanical world that populates the, the writing really has a double side here. And uh, that excitement for science, which should, we should keep in mind, should only be looked and perceived by, with the lenses of their own, their own manifesto on science. So the Futurist Manifesto on Science, or the Manifesto of Futurist Science, it's actually also an early manifesto, very much worth reading. And what we find in the manifesto to summarize it is that essentially, uh, we, the science of the future is spirituality, because that kind of discipline, the discipline that we associate with it, will allow us to see things that eventually the regular science, the standard science, will catch up with. So they argue that in some ways, spirituality is like this the science of the future because we'll be able to see and document and discuss things while we wait for the scientific <coughs> method or a greater or better scientific toolkit to catch up with. So this is, in a sense, <coughs> the connection. And maybe I should stop here. I mean, there's plenty more to, to say, but in a nutshell, this is the research that I, that I produce. I mean, looking at the sources and ask the fundamental question, how could it be that Rousseau suddenly discovered theosophy in 1931 if he's painting that self-portrait with a 30 novel as early as 1911? And uh, the moment that I, that I realized that the, the theosophical sources were there and they were in the work, I had to look at what he was doing with music through, the, again, the lenses of what he had done in uh, Windows visual representation and then reinterpret the art of noise. And then the reinterpretation of art of noise itself, it, uh, I mean, I just basically uh, mentioned briefly what it was, but there's plenty more to say about what he intended to do with one single instrument, what he intended to do with the entire orchestra which first was 16 instrument and then grew up to about 31, 32, uh, about nine years later. Uh, but this will be, this should serve as a good introduction to those problems. Thank you. This recording was produced by Mara Schreffager for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au